Hey everyone, this episode of the Influencer Economy is supported by Truemaker, a new built-to-fit men's clothing company. Most guys want to look better, but don't want to do the work. They want remarkable quality and exacting fit, and they want it to be easy and maybe satisfying. Truemaker delivers. Make an appointment online at truemaker.com, that's T-R-U-M-A-K-E-R.com, and a local outfitter comes to you, takes your measurements, and gets you styled in clothes made just for you. Mention the Influencer Economy for a free gift with your first purchase. Hey everyone. Welcome to Stories from the Influencer Economy. I'm your host, Ryan Williams. Stories from the Influencer Economy is a podcast in which I speak with people in one-on-one conversations about social media, influence, and launching revolutionary ideas online. Really excited for today's episode. I'm posting my full conversation with Freddie Wong. Freddie Wong is the founder of Rocket Jump. He's also uh, the creator of Video Game High School, a series that has been watched over 85 million times. Freddie started his YouTube channel years ago and now has over 7 million subscribers. He's crowdfunded over $1.2 million for his video game high school series, which plainly put is the Harry Potter for video games. Uh, Really happy I went over to Rocket Jump Studios to talk to Freddie. If you want to sign up for more updates about the book, email me at influencereconomy at gmail.com. I'm writing a book as well as hosting this podcast. And finally, I'm on Twitter at Ryan J. Will. Without further ado, Freddie Wong. Actually, I have a funny story. So when I met you at Tubathon, or the last time we saw each other... Tubathon, which is where um, all the best tuba players go. It's right? for uh, marching bands. <laughs> and it's also a YouTube event for charity for helping the homeless. It's like band camp. <laughs> in all seriousness, the fact that they haven't made that joke is such a such a waste on the pun like world. <laughs> Hashtag Tubathon. Tubathon. <laughs> How do you think that looks, by the way? Uh, should I go closer? You should, yeah, you should, you should come sit closer to me. So is this a good range? Yeah, this is good. <laughs> okay, I mean, is it awkward? No, 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 no. We're not videoing yet. this as well. Not yet, not awkward It's about yet. to be uh, approach that status. <laughs> it um, just gradually becomes more awkward, yes. So you gave me your phone number. It's, yeah, definitely awkward. And uh, I called, it, I put your digits inversed. So I called some guy. Inversed? Like your last oh. two numbers were inversed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this guy, like, I talked to him and he's like, I said, is this Freddie Wong? And he said, dude, stop messing with me. No way. And he got really pissed. And he says, I'm Wong Freddie. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, are you just punking me right now? <laughs> like, is this Freddie? And he, he, like, we had a five minute conversation. No way. And the guy's like, dude, stop calling me. And I've left him a voicemail like a few months ago. <laughs> whoa, 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 you're kidding. No way, really? Yeah. Because I have an interesting story about that, um, about numbers being inverse, because I started getting all of these sweepstakes calls. Like, they're like, you won a vacation. I'm like, that? no, one, clearly I didn't. And two, I definitely have not put my number down for anything of that nature, but I just was nonstop. And finally, one of these, one of these, uh, one of these times, I got talking to one of these guys, and you know they wouldn't say anything. But I got to the point where uh, I had one piece of information, which was they kept calling me Nicole. And I was like Nicole. This, okay, so I, I was like, "Yeah, I'm the, yeah, I'm Nicole." And the guy at the end was like, uh, "Like, look, man, don't get me started on my whole life. They've been making fun of me, blah blah blah." And so I was like, you know, I was like, oh, like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I dug into it and I found out, okay, well, this was from one of those mall, like, you know, it's like, write your name down and your phone number and you could win a vacation or you could win $10,000 or you could win this car. Someone had done that. And through talking to this guy, figuring, I figured out what number they put down. They put down my phone number. I'm like, well, what, what could possibly, be? I'm like, there must be a, a digit <laughs> flip. Yeah. So I started calling digit flips and I, it turns out like you know like like the last four numbers let's say is one two three four on my phone number i called one three two four uh-huh i got nicole a cell answered. phone and well, no, no no i got i got a cell phone but no, no no nicole didn't answer but i got her voicemail i was like okay i figured out what it was someone flipped my digits by one and then <laughs> i went one step further and took that number and figured out like and figured out like where it was. It was a Seattle number. I'm from Seattle, which I still retain that. I figured out who that person was, and I called like the house address. Uh-huh. And her mom picked up, and I was like, she was really creeped out at first. Until I was like, "Hey, listen. So your daughter Nicole has been entering a bunch of sweepstakes. You should tell her that this stuff doesn't actually work." And the moment that like I was like sort of explaining, her mom just totally went from like, "Who's this creepo dude calling my house about my daughter?" To like, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry." And then and then that was it for a while. But then people still, I still get people asking for Nicole. And I, but I know you won a prize or you've entered a contest. Well, that's her friends too, misdialing her number. Yeah. And so it's to the point where. 
like I know where she lives. Like, yeah, I'm like part is like it's enough. That you like, knock I should on her just door. go over and be like, "Hey, tell just, your friends and get your phone number." Like right. leave a voicemail here. Yeah. Do you say like this is not Nicole's phone number? In your I voicemail? definitely if if it's a two hundred six number that I don't recognize, like nine out of ten times, it. I'll I, no, I pick it up and I'd be like, "Hi, sorry, Nicole's number is actually," <laughs> and the guy's like, "Oh, oh, okay." Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Anyway, so someone's definitely more popular. Than no, me. this guy Wong Freddy was super pissed at me, <laughs> and. And then I ended up getting your real number and it all worked out, but it was just so funny. That's insane to me. Because he was so pissed. I'm like, dude, this is not on purpose. Like, <laughs> I don't try to screw with you. Yeah, it's like, I don't just, <laughs> like, when's the last time you decide that it would be funny to just call a person and just, and just pretend to be someone else? Yeah, not my style. Yeah, not a lot of humor there. Um, so yeah, that was the escapade. And, and now we're here with the uh, Rocket Jump Studios. You're in the, you're in the writer's room. The of, writer's uh, room. Rocket Jump It's over pretty here. cool. Um, There's a couch. Every writer's room needs a couch. Two couches, actually. Yeah. Placed perpendicular to each other, so to maximize seating. To macro, yeah. to maximize conversation. <laughs> yeah. But they yeah. can't look each other in the eye. No, no, absolutely not. And, uh, and, and one wall, you can't see it, but the wall to the left here is painted all blue because I think Matt uh, co uh, co director of one of the writers on VGHS read somewhere that Pixar uses the color blue to spur creativity. And I don't, okay. who knows if there's any truth to. And pink calms people down. Is it? I know sports teams have pink locker rooms. Is that? Because. <laughs> oh, that's why. For the visitors. Really? Yeah, because they want the visitors to be like calm. To be chilled out. Yeah. And not just confused. Yeah, not just confused. I'll make a colorblind sports team. I'll be, I'll be unaffected by this colorometry. <laughs> and so did you write video game high school in I here? did not write it uh, Matt and uh, uh, Will and Brian the writers we just did they were in here for oh boy like six months straight every day they would get in they, they I mean like if, if anything that I learned from sort of uh, sitting in on contributing occasionally to but sort of experiencing that was if you want to write you gotta have some discipline and these guys were like here like nine to like five every day and they would stay later and they would do a second meeting oh wow yeah it was nuts and so how long in advance, I guess, was that before the Indiegogo launched? So they were starting running season three the moment season two was finished. They took like a couple weeks off and they just went back, right back into it. So they were months, months, a few months. Yeah, definitely. Just, just even just figuring out what to do with the third season. But what did you do when they were writing? <laughs> there's a, there's always other stuff. Did you go to Cancun or I wish. Mexico? No, I haven't taken a vacation in a good long time, actually. Um, but, um, it was just getting the rest of uh, the rest of the channel, the rest of the sort of presence and stuff figured out. And so you've officially Rocket Jump is your main hub at this point. Yes, it is. And you still post to Freddie W. So uh, it actually turns out it is technically, if you want to get really nerdy about it, it is still it, nothing has changed. The YouTube channel is still accessible through youtube.com slash freddiew and that's like you know the login and all that stuff is through that uh but uh we we had a uh but rocket jump basically redirects over to it okay so functionally you know rocket jump is it but 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 uh it's the same thing okay yeah cool well i uh, i was telling you i saw my friends over the weekend and i'm a little older than you and they didn't know what crowdfunding was yeah so they're going to be listening so anytime we talk about crowdfunding make it as simple as possible yeah, crowdfunding is like, it's, how did I sum this up? I'm trying to think about how I summed it up to my parents, which was like, it's using the internet. You can get a bunch of people to give money to you, but they actually don't have equity because there's a lot of like legal stuff around that right now. Yeah, which is coming to some fruition. They'll have an announcement soon with the Jobs Act. They, they have, but then it's out. one of those, yeah, and it's one of those things that like, you know, I think the, I think right now a lot of that, there's a lot of sort of making sure that people don't get swindled and the mm-hmm. consumer protection side of it. But um, I think a lot of that for the, when that gets going will be things like, I'm going to create a giant real estate management company and now everyone has a small percentage of this and we manage properties in 40 cities, right. and condos and, and rental properties and stuff like that where it's just like kind of known entities as opposed to like, let's make a movie or, or things like that where, where I think any reasonable investor would probably shy away from. <laughs> yeah, right, except for fans. Well, that see, are coming that's in a, a different equation. So, 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 you know, I think a lot of people look at crowdfunding and they're very confused by it. One, they, they, and I think they mistakenly, so, so first of all, understand that both Indiegogo and Kickstarter put out there that this is like a charitable thing and this is like for, the, for a fan who wants to help, you know, contribute to something and the goodwill and the nature of that. And that's not true. 
And the way crowdfunding really, like, honestly works is the way people approach it is not from a charitable mindset. It is from a, hey, I should, uh, I want this mindset. So the, you look at the most popular and most successful Kickstarters, it's not like, they're not like some donate to some cause type of thing. They're all like, here's a product that we're making. Here's a watch that can you can get text messages on it. And the, the reaction to that is one of... I want to have this thing as opposed to I want to help support this idea of you know helping something out and those are the most popular Kickstarters and and, and you go go campaigns and the reason why they put it out there is because again the legality of this and the whole like you know equity inside of it they need to stay away from that as far as possible so they have to put themselves out there I think they know internally that the way it works is essentially a giant pre-order platform so when somebody let's say you know let's take some more popular Kickstarter campaigns for even established artists like uh, sort of Zach Braff and his movie or, or the Veronica Mars movie, people weren't charitably donating to these people. And, 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 and it's a mistake to think that like, well, this, these guys, everyone who donates are idiots. This is well, these guys are rich already. It's like, no, that's not what they're doing. They're putting money down because they're getting something in return for it. Now, whether or not you agree with the value of what they get something in return is something as, as a non fan of, of whatever that is may not make sense to you. So if I was a big Veronica Mars fan, yes, it might be worth, you know, uh, uh, 500 bucks or a thousand bucks to go see, you know, uh, a cast and crew screening of that, you know, and, and I'm willing to pay for that because I'm getting, but at the end of the day, it's a transaction where I'm getting something out of it. It's not a transaction where I, as a consumer, put money down and don't get anything back. So that's sort of what crowdfunding is in a nutshell. That's yeah. a very giant nut. No, I love that. It's a big nut. And, uh, <laughs> so when you were doing your latest one at Indiegogo, mm -hmm. I thought your perks were like crazy creative. And we have well, uh, you had a board we game. We actually, and well, here's the thing: uh, we can't take full credit for that because actually, th to be honest, people were doing kind of cool, fun perks like like this before even Kickstarter was around. I remember, I don't even remember the band, but there was a, it was this was kind of in the era of. So first of all, like Radiohead and and Trent Reznor for Ghosts did something similar, where they're like, you know, Radiohead had like the collector's edition of In Rainbows for three hundred dollars. And essentially, it's no different than what like, sort of a lot of the Kickstarter perks are. It's like here's the collector's edition. It's limited, right. blah blah, as this much, and people and they sold out of it. And nobody at the time was looking at that, and be like, those people are getting ripped off. It's like no, clearly they people are getting value. Out is this, of this for in rainbows? I believe it was. Yeah, and then and they I put the album out for free, and then they put the album out for free, and they had like the versions you could pay for, which had more stuff. That's and right. Like that's basically what kicked the, a lot of these Kickstarter perks. Was. I remember one. Band, I forgot what the band was, but they had a bunch of crazy, hilarious ones. Everything from like, oh, the lead singer will record, you know, your uh, your answering machine message, and uh, I don't remember the band. Well, I saw they, one where you would fly to somewhere in the U.S. Yeah, to someone's front door. <laughs> yes, donut donuts uh, donut surprise. Or your, it was anywhere in the anywhere in the world. It was donuts. I'll bring you donuts or your local cultural equivalent of fried dough. Um, but uh, <laughs> did I come, did someone buy it? They did, and luckily they're in the in the states. Where did you fly? <laughs> uh, well, here's the thing: uh, I, I travel a, a lot for random stuff, and so luckily I was in New York, and I was like, "Oh, okay, this is a 40 minute drive." It was in Jersey, so I was like, "Oh, okay, oh, perfect." Crank on over there. So you went to like Ridgewood and knocked on his door. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and so, how do you develop the ideas for these really creative perks? Because giving donuts or fried dough. It's just, it's just, that's like something that someone it's like, all weird. It's, it was just all sitting around being like, what would be weird and fun and kind of interesting things that we could do that someone might conceivably feel like it's worth paying money for. Um, how much was know, that one worth? That one was because part of that went to, you know, covering airfare and things travel. like that travel. Yeah. I think that one was uh gosh, I don't remember. I think that was either five grand or a thousand. I think it was maybe five. I, know, I have to, I have to look. It's, a, it's bad. It's been a while since I looked at yeah. the campaign. I totally forgot. Blank. What are some of your favorite perks you've done? I, I, I gotta be honest. My favorite perk that I've ever seen wasn't even on our campaign. The, my favorite perk I've ever seen was um, the guys who did uh, this game called Barkley Shut Up and Jam uh, Guide in Two. They had a perk that was you can you may impersonate us, like in any interview. <laughs> like the, we will do an interview with Gaming Press about this, but you will be our spokesperson and you can say whatever you want. Oh my god. <laughs> I was like, this is the they best don't care. idea. They're it's like, the best idea. Like, screw I've the media. Heard. We don't give <laughs> yeah. a crap. Uh, probably the most fun one for us was uh, we did like a Disneyland perk, which was like, come on down and we'll all go to Disneyland and, and go see like World of Color and, and stuff. So you went to like Space Mountain with. We Space Mountain it. Like, What's crazy. it like with these people that know so much about you because they've watched your videos for years and then. 
there is a, you, so, you know so nothing about a, them. So there is a sort of weird experience that I'm and that I go through occasionally, which is like when someone says hi on the street or like recognizes us. I think it's a it's a different sort of. It's not like I think you know in LA you see you run across celebrity a lot, you know, and um, the way people approach that is a totally different approach than I think the way people approach sort of like internet famous type types of folks. Uh, case in point, like it's very deferential uh, when it comes to sort of more traditional celebrity. I remember I was eating at a Thai restaurant and uh, like Quentin Tarantino walks in and the and the room was like, oh my gosh, it's him. Don't look over there. Yeah. Like, don't, oh yeah. yeah. Act like he's not here. Yeah, act like he's not here. Be cool, be cool, everyone be yeah. cool. Do put your heads down. Yeah, and that was the thing. I, I took like forever to get the check because the waiter was being so cool that they wouldn't come <laughs> by and bring me my check. I'm like, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I want to like go. Like being way too cool. Like at the point like, they're yeah, trying he was, like, so way hard. too cool. Like, um, that's too cool for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but then you look at the, sort of the YouTube folks and uh, and and the approach isn't that the approach is like oh hey how's it going it's like it's like greeting a friend you know it's, it's like greeting someone that you're familiar with and and um, it's kind of interesting because I think you know the experience of sort of watching YouTube folks is much more on the more I think relatable level it's your more intimate it's on your phone it's on your computer it's on your laptop it's not paying $12 to go look at their 40 foot face on a screen somewhere. You know, it's a different sort of, it's a experience. different type of fame. Cause we, yeah. I, we idolize the Oscar red carpet. Performers. Yeah. 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 And you guys are like making content weekly. So you're, yes, although we're kind of stepping away from you that were at one point. Oh, even, and right now actually sort of big, big sort of, but you do issue. updates on the, we do updates. Like yeah, yeah. Production, um, di production diaries. Yeah, exactly. And then, so I guess the point is, uh, um, with the, with those guys, uh, here's what happens to me a lot: where someone will say, "Hey, hi, how's it going?" and I'll be like, "Do I know this person?" Because they're, act they're like they're talking to me, like I know them, and I have this, I'm really bad with like names and faces. So I'm like, mm, "Crap, do I know this person?" Oh shoot, this may be somebody. And then like it takes a second when it's like, "Okay, I don't, I don't actually know this person. I shouldn't feel bad about like not knowing this person's name right off the top of my head." Um, that happens a lot. So they should just introduce themselves if they meet you. That'd be nice. And say, I don't know you, but <laughs> that, I like your... That'd be nice. Because, well, it would save me you on three seconds. Yeah, it would, take me it would save me three seconds of momentary confusion. Where it's like, oh, I hope, I hope this is not someone who I've, like, talked to, and I'm just forgetting the name of Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you're, in some ways, accessible. I, yeah, well, I think in a lot of ways, a lot of us Because are. you're not, like, on, like you're saying, on the 20-foot screen. Like, I saw Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Funny story, when I first moved here. Oh, yeah. At a steakhouse. Yeah. And he ordered a ribeye steak. Yeah. And he kept asking for it. And he was greasy. He had like this Austin colored, you know, the tan jackets people wear in Texas. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, is that my ribeye? Is that my ribeye? Where's my ribeye? <laughs> and so we're all like not supposed to look at him. Yeah. Because he's famous. Yeah. So the table next to us is like, this is hilarious. Yeah. And we're like cracking up, but we can't smile because he's this weird famous person that we can't interact with. Right. Because he's like, he's not accessible. And I feel like you guys are, people aspire to be you. Because mm -hmm. they're making content, like VidCon, for example, people mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. filming every moment and every interaction. Mm -hmm. But you have an accessibility mm -hmm. that they feel like they do relate to you. Yeah, I think there is a greater accessibility, um, and that comes from it's you know it, it comes from just the nature of what we do, the, the 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 way that we sort of present ourselves, you know, and and I think there's there's even like there's even I would say there's even even degrees of that within sort of like let's so say the YouTube community I would say like guys like like uh, Shay Carl who's a daily, daily vlogger is probably the most accessible mm -hmm. out of everybody and I would say take certain musician types you know who uh, who, who, who they may, may feel less so for whatever reason but it's definitely on, uh, as a whole much more accessible than any given quote unquote traditional celebrity and why do you think that? yeah I think it, I think it has to do with one proximity to the audience I think it, want, it has a lot to do also with um when you talk about traditional celebrity, a lot of times it is bolstered by a machine that manu not necessarily manufactures it, but definitely aids it in its uh, in its in its inception. In that, let's say you talk about, you know, it's like there's a big marketing vehicle, new band I've never heard of before. It's like, well, guess what? Here's millions of dollars to make sure that you know them, recognize them, and, and, and see them. Whereas, I think every single example of uh, someone who has gained notoriety or recognition through YouTube has been through like grassroots, you know, uh, one block at a time, one viewer at a time through the quality or, and, or the accessibility uh, of their content. So it's a different sort of approach to being known in one way you are known because you started from 
not being known at all and you yourself built that up and the other one is you have something that is marketable to the masses and that machine is paying for it to make sure that you are known be it a celebrity in a, in a, in a movie you know, you know or, or or what have you you know and so you have a marketing arm and a business unit that's their job is to book you on the tonight show and today's show yeah, you know, yeah if you're I a celebrity that's or a, a tv actor yeah no for sure i think so and uh, whereas you guys are hustling I think so, and that, of course, that's not to say that that, that those uh, you know sort of more traditional celebrities aren't you know those guys aren't hustling. Yeah, we're not talking crap about celebrities. Yeah, yeah, but but I think but just oh, we are. I am at least. <laughs> but just from a fundamental theory for the podcast, from is a that, fundamental difference standpoint, you know that's that's where the the origins come from. That you know it's not I got discovered. It's I did a bunch of music and people started listening to it. You know that's that's sort of the the direction of it. And so with your following that you built on YouTube, and then you know when you're making movies now, how does that feel to you? Like these people watched you and I, I read a really cool quote that you said where you felt like storytelling and was part of the collaborative process with your fans and you yeah, know, there's you're definitely, actually, they're participating now. Yeah, it, there is, there's a participation just because of the proximity, you know, and I think, you know, and, and, and so here's, here's something that's kind of interesting that, I, that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and that is when we, we, we did a video with, uh, Ray William Johnson, the guy that does equals three, you know, for a while, like the, just the top dominant, the, YouTuber. dominant YouTube thing. Um, and he said not, not so much cryptically, but he did say at one point that because we were kind of early on in the channel early on in, in that process. And he said, or he said that at one point you you need to make a decision and that decision is whether or not you do what you want to do or if you do what your fans want you to do. And that was sort of, and that was, he sort of left at that. And cause he, he started even before doing equals three, doing like a political commentary, political comedy style stuff, you know, and that's oh, the, really? yeah. Oh, it's the way back. And, you know, and, and that was kind of how he got his, that was sort of the first kind of stuff they did was, was that, that level, uh, and that type of stuff. And, you know, I, I think thinking about that a lot, there's, there's sort of a, because we find ourselves in an interesting situation right now. We have, uh, over the course of the last four years, uh, seven million subscribers, and every one of those, every one of those people came to us through a different way. Some people came here because of action videos. Some people saw, uh, you know, gunfight and they thought it was cool. Some people saw a visual effects thing and they thought it was cool. Some people came from VGHS. We even, like, even, even some of our uh, executive producer sponsors on, on on Video Game High School literally had never seen a video we'd ever done, minus when they saw VGHS on Netflix. Wow, like that was that's, that's the kind of difference that we're talking. The whole about gamut is being run exactly. So it's like every single person is here for a different reason you know and we've always kind of done a variety of things it's you know i think some channels it's just it's one thing one show over and over and over again uh for us it's always been like hey whatever kind of floats our boat at any given moment so yeah we're more action movie nerds let's do, a, let's do a gunfight or hey we're kind of visual effects nerds let's do like a musical visual effects thing you know and and what, what really comes down to is then we have an incredibly diverse audience which means that almost anything that you do it's it's it'll satisfy a certain group and it'll kind of annoy another group because mm -hmm. it's just there's no it's impossible. And that's what the YouTube comments are for, right? Exactly. Yeah, to suss <laughs> to that duke out. it out. Yeah, exactly. But so then we're in a situation now where it is very much a collaborative process, but everything we do is going to annoy a certain group of people. On a very fundamental level, I remember this seeing this a lot with Video Game High School. People who are Video Game High School fans, every time a video wasn't Video Game High School or a new episode or something about it, they'd be like, what is this crap? I don't want to see this. Oh, interesting. And the people who hate Video Game High School, which, you know, everyone's, you know, you can do, you can like and not like whatever you want. Uh, for people who hated it, they're like, great, finally, no more of that VGHS crap. So it's like, you have, so it's like literally just from VGHS and not VGHS, we can We've we've divided you know the group of people who are who are who are watching our stuff. So you made a decision to do what you want to do. Well, see, I guess what comes down, essentially what it comes down to is we since we realize it's like we can't satisfy everybody anymore, um, not this stage. So we need to kind of look dig dig down and say, okay, what do we think is quality content? What do we think is actually good? And put that out there and let the chips fall because there's really chasing that tail or chasing that game of like trying to make sure people everyone's happy is one we can't win. Yeah. And what I think is cool, um, in general, people want to learn on the internet. Yeah. And some of your perks were like, we'll give you a film school boot camp. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, when you were with Brandon, you guys did like a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, and we actually, that's funny because we had a meeting the other day, like literally yesterday about this because we want to get back into that sort of educational component and a lot of that has to do with even just recognizing like okay when, when we say education who are we trying to teach here you know it's not necessarily industry professionals and it's also not necessarily someone who's never picked up a camera before so it's a very much a very much a, a process of being like all right let's tailor a film school essentially we're, we're going yeah, to be putting that that's together so cool and trying to figure that out but um but yes education is a very important part of i think this is the experience because even if you have no interest whatsoever in doing uh, in, 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 in being a filmmaker, I think the the elucidation of the process behind which movies are made is fundamentally an interesting one. And at least, you know, I think I think it has some has much wider appeal uh, than than even if you if you're just a filmmaker and you want to learn about it. If you if you're not, I think there's something interesting about being like, oh, okay, this is a whole process. Oh, wow, it takes a whole day just yeah. to do something that short, or that's way less complicated than I thought it was, or whatever that is. You know, I think I, I think one of my uh, one of my friends who I went to film school with, they said their parents came in and they came into town once when we were in school, and they you know they went to sort of see them shoot something uh, in downtown uh, L.A. and then and you know they were setting up the camera, multiple takes, doing move the camera, do a take, and then <laughs> his mom like leaned over and said, "I thought they just did it once and they got it." I was like, "Well, but but." How would the camera? The camera would be looking at itself there. There's like I just I, ne- I guess I never thought about like it. Like never thought know? about like the physics of the physics of that of that process, you know? Right. So the learning part is there's like a there's an ROI. I think people don't value that if you bring people in and teach, mm-hmm. and they become like empowered to be better at what they do. Mm-hmm. Like like with the influencer economy, I'm teaching a class right, right, right. at General Assembly, which is a startup uh, group out of New York, and okay, they yeah. they do you know, how to launch a product mm-hmm. and so I'm doing a marketing thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if I can get people to learn about this yeah, yeah, and they take that home with them, I mean, there's something there that's like, you don't need to go to school for anymore. Yeah. yeah. And how did you decide for YouTube after college? Cause you went to USC and I took classes there Yeah, and you get, I took a summer course. It's like the Robert Zemeckis building. Oh, it's the very Akira, old school. Kurosawa oh, soundstage. Yeah, yeah. Even to the point where, and it's funny cause I, I occasionally do like little events and stuff back there. And, and it was only this year talking to the incoming freshman class that, that the majority of discussion was about like, I could, I should get my stuff out there and seen online as opposed to, I think up until this point it was, I should get a good short film together and put it in a festival. Like that was the, there was a mindset shift that happened like oh, slowly over the past a few years. But like this year was really kind of crystallized and hit a tipping point. Really? Yeah, definitely. I, Cause I, my impression was like, but cause even last year it was like half and half. They're like, yeah, YouTube's kind of cool, I guess. But you know, I want to put together a good short film Yeah, and like go to a festival. It's like really festival. That's crazy. Yeah, sure. Cause uh, in 2013, 2014. Yeah. I mean, it's like if it, if your short film like enters a festival and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, but um, were you ever rejected by festivals? We just never bothered with festivals. You were over it because Bernie. When I talked to him, he said that he applied to Sundance. Oh yeah, with the yeah. indie film, and he said it took like six months to get the film made, six months to get festivals, and he was like, "Wait, I do funny videos on the web, yeah, yeah. and I can see millions of people can see them quickly." And, and then also Sundance in- invited him with Red versus Blue. So he's like a, it's like the industry embraced him. <laughs> the other him. way around. You know, it's right? like yeah. the industry shuns you and then embraced him, but you came a little bit later than him. Yes, yeah. And, and you know, there was, there was a time sort of 90s was sort of like the hot festival moment was that was the, the, the pathway to success was getting a, getting a thing in Sundance and getting bought up and getting a three picture deal from that. And it was, a, it, was a, it was sort of, it was pretty big and sort of like mid nineties was a lot of sort of indie films getting discovered through these things. That's, this was the time of, you know, Blair Witch Project and Pi, Darren Aronofsky's movies. I remember a big one where it was like, Whoa, this was a movie in a festival and he got bought. And, and that was like a big thing. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I think for us it was, it was, we just never saw the appeal of something uh, so limited in terms of its in terms of its reach, you know. And and it just seemed more fun, and it made more sense to say, let's try and grab, let's try and hold on to or or, or, or attract an audience first, and then with that audience, we should be able to be, do other things. And 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 that seemed to be the smarter way to do it. And do you have an idea of the category? A film you wanted to make? 
Uh, I, I you were think, gaming. Yeah, very well, early. we were. It was, a, it was always kind of action and comedy were kind of the two things that, that that we always sort of enjoyed. And there was a visual effects component there as well. You know, um, and we were action movie nerds. And we were, you know, what and, kind of movies do you like? Oh man, Hard Boiled is like the best movie of all time. Uh, John Woo's entire, <laughs> entire, you know, body of work is, yeah. is incredible. What's um, your favorite John Woo film? <laughs> or one of your favorites? I would say Hard Boiled. Yeah. Besides yeah. that. Besides that, you, the killer is great. The church gunfight at the end is great. Um, the criminally underrated hard target in the U.S. with John Claude Van Damme. Oh my is, God, is amazing. Oh, yeah, is a oh there you go. You have to uh, look like uh, your camera. That's funny. Anyway, uh, but oh gosh, Joe Joe's entire thing is incredible. I'm trying to think what else is there. Oh man, Face Off, Face Off, fantastic. It's cheesy, but it's fantastic. Face Off has one of the only and one of the best boat chases, boat-on-boat boat chases ever, um, which is difficult because it's very difficult to show a sense of speed when you're talking about a boat. And Freddie's helping me as a filmmaker. Uh, is it recording? There we go. Dude, um, that's amazing. I didn't hit record. <laughs> good, good thing you're here. Anyway, uh, John Woo's entire entire thing is great. Oh man, I think uh, one of my favorite movies the last sort of five years is Speed Racer. Yeah, which is again criminal. The Wachowskis. Oh my goodness, it was such a good movie. I never saw that. I just you missed out. Really? Everyone hated it. The old cartoon was good. Everyone hated the new movie. All the critics did, but anybody who knew anything or had a inner ten year old still kicking around in them loved that movie. I don't know. Yeah. What about comedies? comedies oh man like animal house or you like john hughes john hughes i mean actually john hughes has a lot of influence on uh vjhs there's definitely a lot of a lot of that that feeling of those sort of high school high school movies on that um you know i I think i would argue i I think super bad is going to be our generation's like breakfast club or yeah or airplane or something yeah like you know naked gun series really i think so like because they draw penises <laughs> no, it appeals to any audience. No, I think I think it's I think Superbad is one of those just like comedies that will last. Really, I think so. Like it's, it's because I think it's very in, 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 in embodies the sort of appetite, sort of like half improvisational, but structure is there sort of thing, which hadn't really been done uh-huh. so much before, and it's not like zany, like you know, like the Zucker stuff. But yeah, I don't know, I just, what are the video game high school? What are the like? What are the influences? That you're drawing in and it, actually i'd love it if you could explain it to my friends from college okay what the plot is because i don't want to simplify it by saying it's harry potter for video games because it's much much deeper that's the easy way i, I think of, of doing it. we even use that one um harry potter or glee but instead of like singing you're uh, duking it out in the first person you're okay so the the basic conceit is all right imagine our universe but instead of like football being as huge as it is it's or soccer in the rest of the world it's professional video gaming and Okay, so if you're a professional video gamer, your peak years are going to be the ages of 19 through 21 because that's when your reflexes are at their at their finest and their sharpest. So therefore, to get trained up for it, <laughs> you need to go to school for it. So it's gonna be, and and, and hilariously, by the way, there are there's something like this in Korea. It's much less glamorous as we depicted, but but there definitely is our pro gaming academies. For StarCraft. In, for StarCraft and, and, and League of Legends. And, and you start in high school age. So high schools are designed around training kids up to become uh, professional video game players. Okay, so they're trying to train up. And then... Okay, so that's the universe. Um, and then it, from there, it's a very sort of conventional fish out of the water. Uh, he gets... You know, our main character, Brian, gets gets invited to the school because he lands, uh, he lands a totally lucky shot in a public match against one of the school's top players, which, of course, attracts the ire of said player, the law. And he gets in there, and it's, it's basically a high school drama, like a high school type of show, but with the conflicts played out in photorealistic video games. Is like say by the bell with video games. <laughs> um, I, I think I like to think that our, uh, I think that our, uh, uh, um, our uh, dilemmas. Ma- maybe Degrassi. <laughs> <laughs> I think our dilemmas are, and and conflicts are a little bit a little bit better than that, especially you know, especially this season goes on because it gets weird. And anyway, it's it's a fun. It's definitely. I guess what what comes down to is a lot of people hoped and expected us to make a show about video games that took video games like super seriously. Like it was really interesting kind of talking to some people who were like, yeah, I just you know I thought that you guys you know the concept was cool but i wish you guys did something else with it 
and, and and what something else means a lot of times is like a more serious gritty take on like how cool would this be and like to us i guess growing up in our in our attitude towards video games it's like no this wouldn't be cool this is weird and hilarious and this is almost a joke and so we love the concept in the universe but we kind of have a lot of fun with it and it's not like because we we joke around sometimes where we're like we should make hardcore gamer academy which is like the show everyone kind of like hoped video game high school would be or because uh-huh. it's like yeah it's like video games the most important thing in the world it's hardcore <laughs> it's and life. you train and it's like all desaturated and like and like really dramatically lit as opposed to a kind of like fun cartoony sort of depiction of that which is i think a much a lot more fun to do anyway okay cool well i want to ask two questions we can wrap this up i know you got a lot going on is one is i'd love for you to explain like the business of the indiegogo oh yeah because i come into your office and you've got a whole team of people and you have production you have editing you have like fulfilling the rewards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Indiegogo is uh, or the Kickstarters because the first Kickstarter you did it broke massive records. And then it was it was funny actually we have we have a pattern of this. First Kickstarter we did broke. Uh, it was before anyone knew what Kickstarter was. This was in November 2011, and it broke a bunch of records for for web series and things like that. And then like the moment it was done, all the video game Kickstarters happened, and everyone's just like Kickstarter, a place for video games. We're like ah darn it. And then the second one we broke more records. And then the moment it finished, the Veronica Mars movie came out. Oh, no way. It was funny. It was, it was for like one week, the most funded film and video project. Oh, no way. Veronica Mars Oh, God damn. It was incredible. Big production um, just beat you. Yeah, we got destroyed. Um, but uh, but it's okay. We have what we need to make. Screw them. We have what we need no, to I'm make our thing. Uh, so so it's, kind of a, it's kind of interesting because Kickstarter, it's always been a, for, for us at least, it's always been a component of a larger financing situation. It's, you know, we, we, if we can't depend 100% on Kickstarter. And we make that clear because, you know, every single season we put, we put out, like, how much did this season cost? And here's where all the money went. And this is how much it costs to cater and have food for everybody. And this is what your cast costs. And this is your location costs in L.A., which are insane. And actually, it turns out, look, look 25%, 30% of everything that we made just goes straight to shipping and manufacturing T-shirts and, and things like that. Um, so we were very transparent with that. And we put everything up on our site, rocketjump.com. Oh, you did? Like the margins of exactly. cost? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the, the, the caveat to that is we, you know, because it's our friends and crew members, we don't go down to the level of like, here's how much we paid each individual actor because, you know, there's privacy. But and, you have some transparency. But we say, here's what, how much a crew costs total. Here's how much the cast costs to have in there total. Here's what the, uh, yeah, exactly. Everything, stunts, location fees, um, costumes, uh, post-production, editing, visual effects. How much does it cost? Because people don't have any, any idea of it. They look at something and they're like, I think the problem is, and this is a very something that's, that's, that's an issue with trying to fund films, is like people are like, a million bucks? Like, psh, you got a million dollars. You guys are, you guys should just, you don't need anything. You guys are done. You guys can do whatever you want. But anybody who, anybody who's sort of like film nerds or who understand that, like if I say I had a budget of a million dollars to say, psh, that's a low budget yeah. affair. You know? Yeah. And, and, and the lay person is like, what? A million dollars? I've never even, that's, I can't even conceive of that. You know? It's considered an indie film. If you're yeah. a million bucks, yeah, a million dollars is a joke in terms of how much, uh, how much it costs. And then you're just like, well, why is that? It's like, well, if you think about it, it's like you're employing 200 people for the course of six months. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, all right, eh, and it costs this much to get all this stuff together and the fees and all that. So it makes sense after you sort of think about it. But there is no resource out there that tells people how much this stuff costs. As far as they know, it's a million dollars, you know, and, and, you know, you'll know how much of that goes into physical production. A lot of times you hear about, oh yeah, it was a $300 million blockbuster. It's like, well, okay, how much did they spend on this? How much do you think was just the actor's fees? Who knows? Nobody knows. And how do you fulfill all this? Like how many team members do you have putting? So we have, um, we have sort of our merchandise sort of crew and our, our department over there. And it depends, you know, flexes depending on like if we need to ship a lot of things or not, but we have, you know, a sort of merchandise department. I guess that's the side of things that people don't really get. And that's the, the, the draw back of being personable and 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 relatable is that a lot of times you don't necessarily and i think rooster teeth actually uh, dodges this very well not dodges but they've over the course of many years managed to establish this very well which is it's not just one person there and i think we still have are trying to shed that perception from us which is like it's not just me here as you saw out there it's a lot of people working and it's like that costs a lot to support there's a lot of infrastructure here and to do what we want to do and 
it's a perception of like, well, you you got all this money on Kickstarter, you're done. It's like, no, there's yeah, a lot of people. You can't retire. No, no, there's a lot of people working here, and there's a lot of people uh, who who contribute to doing and putting out what what we do. And like, how many? What do you call this then? Is it media company or? Uh? It would be. I think it'd be. In, it's just almost a studio. It's not quite a studio. It's kind of a media company. It kind of is trying to. We're trying to do content of our own. So in that way, it's kind of like a studio. But I think it's, uh, I think of it as like a studio in the age of the internet and mm-hmm. taking advantage of what that affords. And how many people do you have working in the office now? So right now, uh, it's, um, myself and the, uh, about 15. And you've taken no outside funding. It's- uh, no, we, we are, yeah, we are still 100% owned and operated ourselves. And you know, I think, I think to be, you know, to be perfectly transparent to perfectly honest, I think part of the equation of growth is to take on outside funding for a portion, uh, of the company. You know, and I think that mm-hmm. that's a, but, but, you know, I, I, I'm not interested right now in, at all in a lot of what's happening right now in this, in the space, which is a lot of these companies are building themselves up, acquiring a roster of talent and then selling themselves. Like Machinima was, that's what we did there. Is yeah. Not, it becomes an advertising network. Right, right, Less right. Less of a community. And- yeah, well, I think what it comes down to is like, what do, what do you want to do? And I think in in, those, in the cases of like you know, Machinima uh, or, or Maker, it is to aggregate content to sell advertising and it's not create content. For us, our goal is very simple. It is create good content, create stuff that we can believe in and keep doing that and do whatever it takes to keep doing that. Our our goal is not to sign on a bunch of people to inflate our, and this is always the funniest thing to me about you know, these things where it was like, I, I think Machinima would come out a lot of times and be like, we have a billion subscribers yeah. or whatever. It's like, how many of those is, it's like you, you literally are taking two channels, like take all your yeah. channels, take the subscriber number and add them up. It's like, how much of that's overlap? How much, that's the same person, how much of that's the same person like, being counted eight times because yeah. they're subscribed to three different, you know, eight different things. It's like, no, nah, no, nah, let's not think about that. Because right now it's very much a game of, inflate yourself, make yourself look valuable and then get bought out. Our end goal is not to get bought out. Our end goal is to continue making content because that's why we got into filmmaking. We're not, we're not, you know, uh, turning and burning business major types who are, you know, trying to just build up a company and, and get rid of it. You know, if, if we were, I took the wrong major and I probably went to the wrong, well, no, probably not the right, probably the right school. USC is a good business school, but definitely did the wrong major for that. Um, for us, our interest is being filmmakers and being able to take advantage of this sort of very unique time in cinema history where we as a filmmaker, as a creator, have direct audience to consumer. You know, you look at the history of the last 100 years, 120 years of film, it's all whoever you make it and then you have to find distribution and you have to and, and distribution is controlled by this company and you know things like that but there's always middlemen there's always middlemen since since you know since the studio system right so it's like you, you couldn't just make something you needed someone else to give you the money to make something uh whereas now it's like no we don't we don't need that middleman as much anymore uh, in terms of getting our content out there and getting it seen you know it, it's not a relationship where we need them it's a relationship where we can use them to be to expand our scope that's interesting. And that actually, that was a great answer because it segues into my next question. Sure. Which was, I remember when I was at Machinima, you did something with John Favreau. Oh, Carsville. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. I have like, I said a baby, so I have way too much <laughs> footage. Just photos and footage. Oh yeah, my God, yeah. I have no idea. Um, so if I... Uh, this is, is going to be the first generation that is completely digitally documented. Oh yeah. Step of the way. Now here's what's interesting to me, right? Because the fallibility, sorry, not to deviate, but this is something I think about a lot. The fallibility of storage media by its very nature, especially flash drives and CD-ROMs even and hard drives are, they will fail mm-hmm. and they will disappear. And a lot of this stuff is stored on home computers, which as you know, if you've ever looked back at a hard drive or a CD you've burned 10 years ago, doesn't exist anymore, or you can't figure out a way of opening it. You don't have the password. You don't have the password, whatever. So a lot of that stuff's gonna be lost. And a lot of the stuff is up on, you know, I think basically on Facebook servers, which is, you know, stored in the cloud and has a little more thing. But let's let's say Facebook disappears, an entire generation of visual record will be lost mm-hmm. and we have photographs and photographs as a printed medium can last, you know, 120 years, hundred years or so. So that's okay. So I still have photographs myself in the youth, but if every photo we take of somebody of our kids is digital and all the things that we do are printing them out and inject, inject printers onto non-archival paper, which will disappear in 20 years and fade out in like 30 years. There's a, I think there's a chance that we will get 
that we will have an entire generation that will not have photos of themselves when they're younger. Like we will have lost a visual record of the time period between 2005 and, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I actually disagree. I look at it the opposite way. Yeah. I've taken more photos of my daughter in six months than I have in my whole lifetime. But where of have me. you stored those photos? Dropbox, Facebook, YouTube. I put up every video from my iPhone directly. I do have thumb drives and hard drives that I'll lose in years. But see, I'm not, here's, here's my point. I guess you know what it is? is? Here's what it is. We've entrusted our Instagram, visual memory. We've Instagram. In, we've entrusted our visual memory not to photo albums and things that we own, but to other companies and computers in other parts of True. the world. Right. I'm hoping YouTube and Google don't go out of business because I think virtually I'm storing things, I hope, in a diverse way. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, But I, mean, I have, like, my parents have very few photos of me as a kid under two years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've taken a billion more of my daughter already yeah, yeah. in six months. Cause that's, that's the question, right? It's like in exactly it's, it's, you have, we have a greater visual record, but it's, it's at no other point in history been more out of our hands. And it's an well, Apple, Google, right. Facebook, right? The, we've, we've entrusted, we've entrusted our these visual big corporations to the fortune 500. <laughs> yeah. We've sold out our whole life. Yeah. And that's what those companies are billions and billions of dollars on Wall like, Street. Like, for example, how hardcore would it be if in 20 years, like, Facebook turns around and says, oh, you want to access all your old photos? Yeah, pay a monthly subscription fee for that. They would totally kill it. If you want to download your photos, yeah. I would pay a lot of money for them. Yeah. Because I have my life on that. That's why, I, but Facebook, I post less on. Yeah. Instagram, I post a lot on. Uh, it sort of goes in trends. That's why Snapchat's the way to go. <laughs> yeah. Because you know it's going away. Yeah. You you embrace the ephemeral <laughs> nature of, yes. of the visual medium. No, that's fair. It's very philosophical. It's very no, sad. I love that. I mean, this is what I think about. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm like looking at my daughter and I can like take 10 photos and edit them and yeah. add filters and delete the ones that Here's are terrible. Here's what I can't wait for. Here's what I cannot wait for. I can't wait for in hospitals, the moment that a child is born, the naming service also offers to register every social media account and Gmail account for that for that uh, new individual. It's like, oh, got Get a new kid. Twitter username. It's like, you want, uh, what's your name? As you write on the birth certificate, yeah. as you enter the birth certificate into the tablet computer that is in, in the room, it'll say, by the way, these usernames are available. We, Would we, you like to reserve them now for... We can't get Peter... Williams, yeah. my, my future son on Twitter, but we can get at Peter R. Williams. Yeah, right. At Peter R. Will. Or does he have a nickname yet? Well, here's the isn't that, and here's the, anyway, I can't wait to see how that plays out in terms of the naming, the, the naming that we give ourselves. Because at a certain point, it's going to reach a saturation level where it's like, I don't want Freddie Wong 8943. It's like, nah, yeah. I want something unique. But how much you, yeah, anyway. I got Julia Williams at G Gmail oh. for my daughter. And so I keep CCing. That's like the best birthday gift. And it's such a common name. Yeah. And so I keep CCing my family and no one's noticed <laughs> <laughs> that my daughter is going to have these emails in her inbox yeah. when she starts using Google Mail, which is a frightening thing that I'm oh, yeah, giving yeah. Google access to my daughter's life when she's two months old. Yeah. Eventually. It's an event. It's a, it's a down. But it's an unfortunate it's a thing. A big brother is not the government. Yeah, we. I mean, the NSA obviously has proved that wrong in some ways, <laughs> but we watched big, you know, the movie or the uh, the book, nineteen eighty four. Yeah, you know, Orwell thought the, the government. government was going to look over us. Oh, it's, it's corporations, Silicon Valley. Yeah, it is big media companies. Yeah, I'm sorry, we got so sidetracked. No, that's great though because my next question has nothing to do with this. Okay, good. Um, and I saw the John Favreau video you did. Okay, yeah, yeah. When I was at Machinima, and I was like, this is cool. And I think there's a fine line between like organic people pitching you mm -hmm. to make videos that are cool that help you as yeah. grow as an artist and creator. And then you have abilities to monetize. And you yeah. guys have worked with a lot of video game companies. We have, yeah. And how do you explain the phenomenon of working with a brand that your audience is cool with you working with? I think it's very basic. I think what it comes down to is it comes down to the content. And if the content is kind of crappy and I'm, you know, we, we've been guilty of this, you know, I'm not going to hide behind that. We've done some promotions where we're like, yeah, the video wasn't as not that good then people don't like that because it's like, not only is it not that good, you're also promoting something else and you're intruding on my sort of viewing experience with something that's kind of crappy and a brand that I had no interest in and now it's being presented to me and I don't care. That's annoying. Uh, but yeah, you know, we look at like energy drink companies, right? It's like Red Bull, like Red Bull can do essentially no wrong. Like they can just throw their logo everywhere and nobody's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. They dropped someone from the stratosphere right, exactly. of the earth. That's cool. We're like that's, that's the awesomest thing ever. Cool, right? yeah. So that's, that's what it is. The content's cool. And it's like, nobody's sitting there being like, well, yeah, he jumped from the, he did broke a record free fall, you know, Felix, but yeah, it's like, whatever he's sold out. It's like, nobody's saying no, that. No, nobody's that guy's a badass. Ever. Yeah, exactly. And so, 
<laughs> it has to do with trying to, it's trying to treat it. What a sellout. Yeah, what a sellout, dude. You saw all the Red Bull logos all over that. What a loser. Yeah. Well, nobody said that. But but the whole point was, the whole point is the content. And if the content is something that's interesting and it's something that's engaging and it's like cool. Uh, and, and a lot of times, you know, we, we, what we try and position as is like, is cooler than it would have been otherwise. You know, for a lot of stuff we do, it's like, yeah, we need money if we want to flip this car or blow this thing up. You know, it's like the costs, you know, just permitting and, and all that. And, and, and just the sheer cost of doing, you know, stunts and things like that. And it's like, well, okay, if the brand steps in and enables us to do that, that's a much better, I think you can get away with it in terms of just being like, look, yes, there's a trade-off. We all understand there's a trade-off because we all understand things cost money in this world, you know? And so it takes a long time to build an audience. And what device would you have for someone to make money in online video at this point? And it's tough. It's a long tough. game. It is. It's a long game. It's, uh, but I think you have to stick to fundamentals. I think that a lot of times you know, we get we get questions like oh what kind of video should i make it's like dude i don't know like uh, the videos that i made back when i started wouldn't work now because there's a lot more people doing it and if what you make is is fundamentally quality and fundamentally good and appealing then that that's where you start that's where you think about it. it's not about what to do it's about how do you do something well and in terms of like money and in terms of like monetization, it's like, yes, you can try and chase whatever the, you know, I remember for a while, like in, like in high school, there were sites that would pay you to click on banner ads and you can make money that way. It's like, yeah, those, but what you really should be thinking about is like, are you, are you attracting an audience? Are you talking to people? Are you, are you engaging people? And who knows how you monetize off of that? Like we didn't build an audience with the idea of like, Hey, and here's what we'll do when Kickstarter comes around in the next two years, we'll use that. And then it's like, no, no, we, we had no idea what Kickstarter was, but Kickstarter with an audience in place, when it showed up, we said, Oh, this is something that could work for us. And here's how we can make this work for us. And it wasn't an idea of looking forward and, and, and trying to anticipate what comes down the line and how we can do what, you know, what we're doing now for that it is just fundamentally, we don't know how it's, how, how we can make money off of this. We do know that having an audience who likes what you do is a very powerful thing. And I have no idea if you even can make money off of that or what that enables you to do. What, you know, at the time it was like, well, okay, but we know we want that. And so that's the goal. Okay. That's a great way to end. Cool. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. And, uh, I'll, I have your number now. Yes. yes. Stop calling that other guy. Wong Freddy will no longer be uh, annoyed. <laughs> he might. He might still. Thank you for checking out the episode with Freddy Wong. Take a look at all his videos at rocketjump.com. Video Game High School debuted the third season a few months back. It's already just making, making millions and millions of views already. So please check him out. He was also on Kimmel. Conan O'Brien, so really excited to have him back in April when I recorded this. Make sure you check all the archives out at InfluencerEconomy.com for all the past episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Would love it if you could leave a review. If you like it for five stars, do that. That'd be awesome. InfluencerEconomy at gmail.com is my email. And finally, want to thank everyone who supported me. Neil Ketkar, Ryan Stoner, Michael Williams, David Tyndall, Matt Perez, Rachel Romero, Bernie Burns, and many, many others. Without further ado, I'm heading over to Duke Zeberts for some chicken in the pot. <laughs>